ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Hi, this is Chickie Fitzgerald, and we are here on our Back by Popular Demand series with one of my favorite authors, Erica Anderson. <laughs> and Erica has written a new book called Be Bad First, and it is a very provocative title. Uh, the subtitle is Get Good at Things Fast and Stay Ready for the Future. Erica, welcome back. Thank you. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. We've had so much fun talking in around previous books. <laughs> well, we have. And, you know, I was trying to remember the last time we spoke, and I think it was Leading So People Will Follow. That's exactly that right, right, which was just about a little over three years ago, yeah. And I love the cover of that book with the, the, uh, <laughs> with the hummingbird bird, right, <laughs> uh, flying in the V formation. And, and uh, so that book was all about leadership. Uh, I don't know if we ever talked about growing great employees, but our very first interview uh, was on being strategic. Being strategic, uh, yeah, exactly. That was yeah, and too. I loved that one because, well, on the cover, uh, for those who are listening, is a, a picture of a castle, and Erica started out telling a great story about the castle. So, Erica, tell us about how this book uh, came into being. Um, it's a it's a really interesting story. It arose in some ways out of previous books. So one of the things that we've been noticing, as I'm sure you and everyone else has been noticing over the last probably 10 years, is how much more quickly things are changing than they used to. You know, I'm, it's sort of we're living in this world that's operating in ever-accelerating rate of change. And right. there's a wonderful... Um, thing that I found that I use as research in the book, there's a great guy in the who operated in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s named Buckminster Fuller. Do you remember yeah. him, Bucky Fuller? Yeah. Oh, I do. And he wrote a great book in 1982 called The Critical Path, and it was about the expansion of human knowledge. And he proposed this wonderful thing. He said, okay, let's, let's suppose that the amount of knowledge that the whole human race had in the year 1 AD is one knowledge unit. And then he did a lot of research and found that, by what he could tell, that that had doubled by about 1,500. So it took about 1,500 years for the total, sum total of human knowledge to double from one knowledge unit to two knowledge unit. But then it doubled again by about 1750, and he proposed that this was primarily because of the printing press and ocean-going ships, which are, if you think about it, just great knowledge viralizing mechanisms, yeah, right? Yeah, I found actually the second one. I mean, the printing press was, was kind of obvious that that, yes. that would allow things to transcend the, you know, kind of sharing around the campfire. But exactly. I, I didn't really think about the, the ships uh, yeah. really making a difference of taking those stories not only to the next village, but, you know, really literally. To the next the continent, exactly. Right. So then, so then it, you can see it as a geometric curve. Then it starts to ramp up. Then the next doubling is 1900, then 1945 or so, 1970, 1985. You know, it really starts to... And, and now people who have followed his work estimate that human knowledge is doubling about once a year. 
And so I just think it's a great kind of metric for our lives, for what's happening. I mean, Well, it's the, frightening, the, though, because you then go on to say that it's going to start doubling, you know, like in hours. Every 10 minutes, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, yeah, that, absolutely. That that's where the, that's where the curve goes. And yeah, so, no wonder my head hurts. Hey, yeah. before, we, and, before we dive too deeply into the book, though, and, and you, you can certainly uh, finish that thought, but I, I want to go back for the people who haven't, heard the previous interviews and have you give a little bit of your story so finish your thought and then if you can take us back uh to you know the erica before you were an author okay wonderful so i'll i'll tag it by saying that let's come back to this in a minute and say why that's important that knowledge is doubling so quickly so just hold that thought and then we'll come over to me so great and thanks for indulging uh, me but i I, I realized i forgot to have you do that piece and and i find that it's a great framework for our audience uh to really understand why the information that you bring to the table is valid and important yes wonderful context thank you so Um, I am the founder of a company called Proteus that started in 1990, so we've just had our 26th anniversary, and we focus on what we've come to call over the years leader readiness. So we help individual people be ready to lead effectively as individual leaders in their first leader jobs and then all the way, however far they go, to the CEOs of their companies. And we also help them be ready as leaders to lead their organizations into the future. So it's it's all about having the skills, having the knowledge, having the you know, conceptual understanding and the practical ability to be ready to lead. So that's all of what we do. And we work with um, Fortune 50 companies and startups and everything in between. And the main areas we work in, we, we have three practice areas. The first one we call strengthening leaders, and we do executive coaching and team development. Second one we call clarifying vision and strategy, and that's what we do. We help organizations get clear about the future they want to create for themselves and how to get there. And the third one we call building skills and knowledge, and that's our leadership and management training part of our business. And uh, we have offices, two offices in the U.S., one in New York and one in Minneapolis, and we have an office in Santiago de Chile, and we're opening one next year in Paris. So. Wow. And, and so before company. you before you founded Proteus, uh, were you in corporate life or were you in academia? What did you do? Um, it's a great question. I spent my uh, 20s uh, on a kind of spiritual quest and living in spiritual communities and trying to find the core of my life, which I was happy to note I was successful in doing. <laughs> and then for uh, the six or eight years then before I started Proteus, I was in the training and consulting world, I worked for a couple of three wonderful organizations that did various things around management development and learning organizations and kind of paid my dues and learned a lot and then felt like I was ready to start my own business. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's been a fun ride. <laughs> well, let's let's go back uh, then to this current book. And, and so knowledge is, is uh, multiplying at at really what I consider to be an alarming rate. Because an alarming how, rate, yes. Yeah, because how how is it? I mean, clearly the population has increased substantially, you know, from the first measurement uh, that Buckminster Fuller did, right? <laughs> but but it's more than just that because it's, it's awareness of stuff that we didn't know about. And, and quite frankly, a lot of things we don't even 
care about. Precisely, and don't care about don't care. Why I know them? Precisely, and there's a billion things that we can't possibly know. But if we translate that into practical terms, I think one really evocative place to talk about it that's meaningful to everybody is is careers. So, if somebody became something X in 1920, a pipe fitter, a doctor, a seamstress, a school teacher in 1920, by the time they stopped working, and you know, 40 years later in 1960. Their job was probably more or less the same. I mean, you know, they were still a pipe fitter or a seamstress or a doctor, and some new things had happened, but really, pretty much it was, you see, you know, two generations ago, you get a job, you have that job your whole life, you retire, and then later you die. <laughs> and now, they, they did a study of millennials recently, and they found out that millennials propose that, expect to have between 15 and 20 different jobs in the course of their work life. Not just bigger versions of the same job, but different jobs. And that most of them expect that the job they have now, and I love this statistic, the job they have now will not exist when they retire. Oh, that's amazing. Take that on board, right? I think about it. Like, whatever I'm doing now, I don't imagine that that will even be happening. So that's, that's kind of the practical impact of this change. So what that implies, and then therefore why I wrote this book, is that the key skill, I, and I really believe this, for success in the 21st century is the ability to acquire new skills, new understanding, new ways of operating quickly and continuously, to be able to fluently go back to being a novice over and over and over again for the rest of your life, well, which is very so different funny. than what previous generations of human beings had to do. Yeah, you know? but it's so funny because two weeks ago uh, we had another author on the show, and that was the topic of her book as well. And, you know, it's a topic, and I've interviewed over 400 authors, and, and it's mm. funny that within two weeks you guys have have both brought forward the same exact thing. Do you mm. know Liz Weisman? Uh, I, I know her name, yeah, for sure. She, yeah, so she also book, wrote another book around the same time I wrote Leading. Yeah, and this one is called Rookie Smarts, Why Learning Rookie Smarts. Knowing. I, yeah, you, yeah, you should go back. And, I, I mean, if you don't have time to read the book, at least listen to the radio show because she she has much the same premise. But uh, you know, I think you've you've attacked it uh, from a different angle. But you know, the funny thing uh, that she and I were talking about is that our generation, and you know, I'm I'm uh, on on the latter end of fifty something, um, but our generation valued uh, expertise. And, and it Precisely. wasn't just that we had the same job and that we just had bigger versions of it as we went on. Um, we didn't reinvent ourselves because, for the most part, it was the mastery that made yes. us who we were. Yep. And, you know, her premise is that the mastery gets in the way. I totally, totally agree. And, and in fact, one of the uh, testimonials, which I'm very thrilled to have, and we put it on the front of the book, is from Seth Godin, who says, Eric Anderson shares an important secret, competence is overrated. Uh, you know, fun to read, right. quite powerful, whatever he says. But it's, it's absolutely right. And in fact, so, so, then the, so that got me kind of toward writing this book. And then what I noticed as I was coaching executives particularly is that I, I kept, as I helped them try to get to be better learners and let go of their expertise and be open to the new things that they have to learn to succeed today, I kept coming back to these four mental skills because I noticed that people were 
who were good at that, who, who were what I came to call high payoff learners, were good at these four things. And I noticed that I was talking about them and using them a lot when I was teaching. And so I thought, oh, I, there's a model here. And so I extracted the four skills, named them as I saw them. They made an acronym, and then that was the core of the book. And I really dug into it and did a lot of research. And it turns out that what I had discovered empirically really lined up well with a lot of findings, current findings in psychology and neuroscience. So that was fun, too. And uh, the model, as you know, at the core of the book is what is a new. And that stands for aspiration, neutral self-awareness, endless curiosity, and willingness to be bad first. And fortunately for all of us, they are developable mental skills, all four of them. And then, as you know, I go through in the rest of the book and help people figure out how to improve in those areas. Right. And so you start with the whole issue of this new need to learn. And yes. learning used to be something, again, that was kind of relegated to uh, educational institutions. Institutions. And, Precisely. you know, perhaps you went through some period of training. I was, I was reading a blog uh, that an employee of, uh, I think it was Yelp, um, had written, and she actually got fired as, as a result of writing the <laughs> book. But she was 20-something, right, and talking about how, uh, you know, here she was working in customer service for this company, and she couldn't believe that they were going to make her work an entire year right, in, in this before she could move on to where she really wanted to be, which was social media and blogging and all of that kind of thing. But but she was talking about the training, you know, that they put her through, and, and she actually talked about how she demonstrated, you know, what she learned. Um, but it, it's interesting. You talk here in this first chapter about the mixed response to this yes. need to learn. And I know I'm happiest, and one of the reasons why I landed for the last 20 years of my career in the consulting arena was that every single engagement I was learning, I mean, perhaps mm -hmm. much to the dismay of the clients, but the fact <laughs> is, uh, you know, they would hire me to do XYZ, right? And I may have never done XYZ before, but I had done, you know, a ABC in a different environment, and I could you know, kind of take that learning and apply it to XYZ, right? But then the, the weird thing and the cool thing is I would become an XYZ expert right mm -hmm. at the end of that engagement. Um, so I, I have always loved that need to learn, and, and it was a very fundamental part of what I did. But not everybody feels that way. Yes, most people do not have that unalloyed, you know, yes, I love to learn. Most people do have a mixed response because – the, and the mix is we almost every human being has a strong will toward mastery. I mean, if you know if you've read Dan Pink's book Drive or any of the stuff that's come out in the last 20 years about self-determination theory, you know, mastery this this really wanting to be good at things is a core human motivation. And it's and of course it is. It's a survival skill. All all through human history, the people who've gotten good at the most important things were able to reproduce, right, and pass that trade on. So so that helps. That's the thing that helps us. The thing that gets in our way is exactly what you were talking about before with rookie smarts and what, what you said about baby boomers and expertise is we, we like being good at things, but we don't like the process of getting good at things often because it right. means we have to go back to being a beginner. And for most people, once they get to be adults, they kind of hope they'll never have to experience that again, <laughs> you know. And so that awkward phase when you have to ask a 
bunch of questions and you make a bunch of silly mistakes and you have to do things slowly and do them over and over again. We're like, oh, I don't want to do this again. So so it, it sets up this tension for most people of, yeah, I want to have mastery, but I don't want to get there. And so these four skills that I go through in the book are the way of taking you over that hump so that you can access your will to mastery. Well, and, and before we go on to the a new concept and, and the individual components of that, there, there was another um, thing that you talked about in, in the beginning part of the book, and that is this is not another book about failure, yes. failure, failure as teacher, because um, failure actually implies the end of something, right? And, yes. and being bad first is a process along the way. <laughs> Right. Failure oh, is, is oh, Chicky, I'm so work. glad you said this yeah. because, but whenever I would say 80% of the time when I start talking about this to somebody, the first place their brain goes is, oh yeah, yeah, fail fast, fail forward. I know all this already, and I have to stop and go, no, that's not actually what I'm talking about. It is good to be willing to fail and to be resilient in the face of failure, but what I'm talking about are the skills that let you, to your point, Chicky go past failure and keep going and keep well you know how do you just get better and better and better and in fact what i've come to see is that if somebody has and uses these skills massive failure is less likely to happen it's actually a protection against massive failure right right and you know i can see that because right now i'm at a place i'm i'm in my i think 11th startup <laughs> um, now, some of those startups were what I call protected startups. Like my first startup was when I was an employee of American Airlines in the Sabre division, and I, you know, went and asked for three million dollars to go buy a company. You know, mm. which uh, again uh, was nurtured in the protection of me having a paycheck every week, yes, whether were, whether or not the business you, was successful. You were entrepreneuring. Oh, I was. <laughs> I was really good at that. And, that. and some days I wish I was back. <laughs> Entrepreneuring, but uh, I've been out extra or uh, entrepreneuring <laughs> for some period now. But the interesting thing is, um, I'm being bad at an, a number of things right now, and I, yeah. and it is the most uncomfortable time. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, all I want to do right now, and I'm hoping you're going to help me through, you know, <laughs> these four things, because right now all I want to do is to be able to hire the people who do the things that I am being bad at. Exactly, and just go back to the comfort zone where you feel like I'm an expert, I have something to offer. It's human nature. I want to get back to what I do really, really well. So, um, before again, before we get into the aspiration, neutral self-awareness, endless curiosity, and willingness to be bad, which are the components of a new, this actually came, and you call it cracking the code, and and this was inspired by Michelangelo. And I I know you're you're kind of a student of of the past, and and looking at that as a, a way to map out where we're going. So talk to us about Michelangelo. Okay. And it was less inspired by Michelangelo than it was. I just I was looking around for a great historical example. As you say, I'm a student of history. I love history. You know, from being strategic, okay. I used Flewellen in Wales in the 13th century. And, and, I, and I had known some about his... Um, you know, painting of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And one of the facts I knew about it was that he didn't want to do it. So I thought, oh, well, maybe this is a great example of the first skill, <laughs> aspiration. And as I dug into it, I thought, this is a fantastic example by a world-class, you know, timeless learner of 
using, applying all four of these skills. And so it just ended up being such a perfect example. I couldn't resist using it. <laughs> uh, well, I didn't know he didn't want to do it. That's, that's yeah, that, that was the fun part. So he, so Michelangelo did not consider himself a painter. He he didn't even he he didn't even really know how to do fresco, which was the medium that the Sistine Chapel ceiling was done in. He didn't consider himself a painter. He'd only kind of done fresco in the studio of his master as a you know as a student, and he considered himself a sculptor and an anatomist and an architect. And he uh-huh. kept trying to talk the Pope out of making uh-huh. him do this, and saying, Oh no no no, the thing I really want to do, I have this fantastic idea for this marble tomb for you. Mr. Pope, right. that will take me years to build. So that by the time you're dead, and the Pope's like, no, dude, you have to paint the ceiling. So, you know, I guess at the end of the day, you kind of can't say no when the Pope asks you to do something and you're, exactly. you know, a Catholic painter in the 16th century. And so he he ramped up his aspiration. I mean, he got himself to want to do it, which is just such a fantastic example. Well, and and really that's... <laughs> That is the key, because I, I think about right now, if what I want to do is hire people with the expertise, it means that my only choice is to go borrow money so that I can hire them with borrowed money. Bad idea, by the way. Second is to raise money, and there are all kinds of ups and downs of that, or I can sell some business so that I actually have revenue to pay for them, which is the best idea, but that's the thing I don't want to do. Right, right, <laughs> right. I do right. not aspire to making sales calls. So so how, if you don't want to do something, where can that, or aspiration, and I inspiration, love right? Okay, so that's where a great example. From? So the, the, you know, the first skill, I call it aspiration because that, at the core, that's what aspiration is. Aspiration is wanting something that you don't now have. So we think that aspiration is kind of immutable, that either we want something or we don't want it, and there's nothing much we can do about it. But the beautiful thing that we discovered, that I discovered over the years, is that you can actually change your level of aspiration. And that is so critical to know in this realm of learning, because quite often, for all the reasons we've talked about, we don't want to learn the things that we most need to learn. So... Here's how it works, um, and I'll just I'll use you as a guinea pig. So when you want to do something or want to learn something, what do you think about when you think about learning or doing that thing? Well, I, I go through two processes. One is I envision it done, right? So I look at <laughs> yeah. the end process. And, and, and perhaps a better example in my case than the sales example and, and raising money and borrowing money is wanting to lose weight, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely aspire to being a size 12, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and I picture myself at my daughter's high school graduation yes. much thinner and fitter than I am now. But yeah. the real pain isn't great enough because the pain is how I'm going to look in the picture for her graduation mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. many people are really going to see that anyway. So if I don't do it, the pain isn't great enough. Okay. Oh, so, let me use so this I as an example. This is, 
Yeah. This is so perfect. So you do what everybody does, what people who are good at raising, them, getting themselves to do things. They they envision a future where it's true, where this good thing that they, you know, where yeah. they've learned the thing or done the thing and it's true. Now, the 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 blank, the thing that I, I am going to help you, the thing that I'll help you fill in, which which you one can learn how to do is, and and you really pointed to it just now. You have to find the benefits of doing or learning that thing that are really motivating to you. So what you just said is the benefit of looking different in the picture is not enough of a motivation for you, right? Right? So you have to find the things that really move you. And and you can tell because you get excited, really excited, and start making effort when you start thinking about it. I'll, I'll use a funny example from my own life. So about not quite 15 years ago, I turned 50 and I thought, okay, if I'm going to be old, I better be in good shape. I guess I have to start exercising. And none of the standard benefits were motivating to me. Like, okay, yeah, good for my heart. Yeah, I know it'll, you know, keep my bones strong, whatever, dude. It just didn't motivate me. So why I finally started exercising, two motivations that were absolutely personal to me and might not have been motivating to anybody else. The first one was I went to a gym to kind of look around, oh, maybe I should join the gym. And I noticed this guy reading while he was on an elliptical trainer. And I thought, oh, I didn't know you could do that. And then at the time, you know, I'm, you, can, you can relate to this. I was building a business. I had teenage kids. I had no time. I thought, wow, if I did the elliptical trainer three times a week for half an hour, that's an hour and a half of reading time. That was hugely motivating to me. I may be the only person in the world who ever started exercising so I could read more, right? That really was meaningful to me. <laughs> so you have to find benefits that really connect to you. And then you envision the future where you have those benefits and you're like, yeah, that's say I I lost about 35 pounds about 12 years ago and the benefit for me was how I wanted to be able to move in my body. I, it wasn't about, you know, it's better for your health or even how I'd look or right. I wanted to live in my body in a certain way. That connected with me so deeply and it, it motivated me to lose weight. So, so, so that's the secret. If you want to get yourself to want to do something or to learn something that you don't now have enough motivation to do, you have to find a benefit that's personally, personally meaningful to you. And I does that make sense? Too, it, it does, Erica, but I wonder, too, in, you know, again, uh, sticking with this particular example for a, a few minutes, um, when I move the goal out from graduation where the pictures, not a lot of people are going to see that, so what's the big deal if I don't? Uh, if I move that out uh, for me, what would it be, um, like 12 years um, mm-hmm. to where – more than that. Anyway, to, to when I'm 75. Mm-hmm. Okay? Both of my parents died at 75. Okay, I don't want to do that because yeah. I've got a 15-year-old and I've got a 17-year-old. I started way late in life having kids. So when I move the goal out to 75 of that I want to be healthy, I want to be riding a bike and not you know, mm-hmm. sitting in a wheelchair, um, you know, then... That is inspiring to me, but it still has to be inspiring to me to change my behavior today. Precisely, right? Precisely. So I, I'm, I'm still, and and I'm, I'm trying to grab a hold of that. And so let's go back to the business uh, example that I gave earlier. I know that I need to do this, or 
I've either got to do one of those three things. Borrow, well, actually, I didn't mention the third thing. I either need to borrow money, I need to raise money, or I need to give up. And (laughs) all three of those are completely unpalatable. So the aspiration and the inspiration to actually get on the phone and make sales calls and to know that I have to actually pick up the phone and I have to make a certain number of calls in a day, a week, a month in order to get results, right? Yeah. Um, but then I don't have to shut the company down, I don't have to raise money, and I don't have to borrow money. You know, so, I'm going to use this example again because logic is often not the best motivator. You, you, can, you can sit there and tell you, the cows come home and say, I better do this or bad things are going to happen. I'm going to have to close the company down. And you notice that you're still not doing it, right? So you, it really right. is all about finding whatever those benefits are. And they could be completely illogical, completely quirky, completely whatever that really do. And, and you know when you found them because your behavior starts to change. Right. If you really have tapped, in, tapped into a benefit that's personally motivating to you, You'll be motivated. You'll start behaving differently. So you just keep kind of sorting until you go, oh, yeah, okay, and you find yourself picking up the phone, you know? Interesting. So the next one intrigues me because the <laughs> subtitle of this one is the American Idol Syndrome. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, I have to admit, I, I actually don't watch American Idol. I, I love music, and I, I love, uh, you know, just the whole performing arts thing, but I'm more of a the voice kind of person. Yeah. Um, but I do know what American Idol is, and I, I, you know, every once in a while somebody will send a link to, you know, somebody who just completely amazes the judges. So, so here's why that was a good example, the American Idol thing. So the the, title, the chapter, as you say, is titled Neutral Self-Awareness, the American Idol Syndrome. So it, it turns out that neutral self-awareness, which means being able to be really objective and accurate about yourself as you approach new learning in terms of, Am I good at this? Am I bad at this? How good? How bad? How do I feel about it? You know, just really aware of where you're starting from is essential. Because if you're not aware of where you're starting from, then you're not going to be open to what you actually need. And and an example I use is there was a guy that I met two or three years ago who just thought he was a great manager. And uh, the only people who agreed with him were his wife and his coach, who sadly was colluding with him in this, Everybody else around him thought he was a terrible manager, and objective observation would lead you to believe that he was a terrible manager, but he was just not listening to that. He was not neutrally self-aware. And so when his boss, who was the CEO, offered him a new coach or gave him feedback about what he needed to do differently, it just bounced off. He was unable to learn because he thought he didn't need to learn. So it's essential to know where you're starting from. And the reason I love using the American Idol example is you know, even if you haven't watched it, I'm sure you know the kind of meme of it is that there were people, there are people who get on American Idol who literally cannot sing, can't sing, can't carry a tune in a bucket. And they really think that they're going to be the next American Idol because they have zero neutral self-awareness. They have completely insulated themselves from even the sound of their own voice, from any data that's going to tell them that they're not, you know, they shouldn't quit their day job. So it's just such a poignant example. And if you're going to be a a good learner in this new age of learning, you have to be willing to be really fair witness about yourself and say, I'm kind of horrible at this right now, or I'm pretty good at this right now, or I'm scared about this right now. You have to be honest with yourself. 
Well, it's interesting uh, that you bring that up because I use in my consulting practice um, an exercise where we, we get a big uh, roll of butcher block paper and we put it on the wall and we draw a grid on it and down the left-hand side on the top is, is love and, <laughs> or I'm sorry, uh, no, do well. Uh, beneath that is do badly or haven't tried and then across mm-hmm. the top is love and hate. And mm-hmm. so we we give, we give everyone in the room a stack of sticky notes, and the stack of sticky notes all has the same thing on each of the sticky notes. So it's it depends on what kind of company it is, but you know it might have uh, cold calling, sales presentations, um, you know PowerPoint, public speaking, you know all the tasks that need to be done within that department or that company. And so everybody gets the same things, and they put their initials in the upper right-hand corner. And then Mm -hmm. they take those sticky notes, and they put it onto that grid. So they either love it and do it well, uh, think they might love it, maybe have never tried it, Mm -hmm. uh, or they do it really well, but they absolutely hate Hate it, it. right? Yes. And usually there's none that falls in the lower right-hand corner. That is a wonderful exercise, Chicky, and it's a beautiful example of helping people to become neutrally self-aware. Right, but there's another dimension to it that that I think actually brings in the aspiration piece of it, which Mm -hmm. which is really interesting because we then – so the person self-ascribes, right? So they they put where they are. And then the other people get a chance later to kind of uh, comment on that, right? Uh, But first – I give them uh, red dots and green dots uh, that they can stick on those notes. And and the red is things that drag you down, right, and and drain you of energy. And the green is, is, uh, you know, things that energize you. And it's funny because you can be energized by things that you actually hate but you do well because you get that pump up of, yeah, I did it well. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. the interesting thing is that, the things that you think that you're bad at, right, um, you know, that they actually can energize you, and that's where you should spend your time, you know, Mm. of of actually working on getting training. Or, you know, sometimes those things that you do badly or you do well but you hate, you might be really good at managing other people doing that. So it's it's a really fun exercise. Wonderful exercise. So let's use that as the starting point for the actual skill of this. So how do you get, because I'm sure one of the things you find when you do that exercise, Chickie, is that some people are accurate in assessing themselves, and some people, they're putting up their stickies, and you know them, and you're going, you know, sorry, no friggin' way, you well, are not good at that, right? Exactly, but that's why the next stage of that is having, <laughs> Which is having managers in the room going over, or coworkers exactly. saying, no, you know what, you think you're bad at this, but you're really good at it. Or, or vice versa. Vice versa. <laughs> so then the core of this skill is being able to vet yourself. Now, we, I do also talk about sources, having good sources that will give you accurate feedback, but the way to get better at it your own self internally so that you can be good at it moment to moment is to notice it's it's about how you talk to yourself. And all this skill and the next two skills are all core based in how you talk to yourself. So to get more neutrally self-aware, you start becoming aware of how you talk to yourself about yourself. Now, we you know we all talk to ourselves all the time, right? <laughs> we have this little monologue running in our head all the time. And we tend to believe it, whether or not it's true, because it's happening inside our heads. And we believe what we say to ourselves about ourselves, whether or not it's true, whether or not it has any basis in reality. So then if you want to become more neutrally self-aware, what I suggest is that you start to question it. So if you're approaching some new area of learning, 
like let's say you do want to learn how to sell. Okay, so the core of the core skill in being able to get more accurate about yourself, become more neutrally self-aware, is to recognize how you're talking to yourself about yourself. So first of all, you know we all talk to ourselves all the time, right? Yes. We have that little thing running in our head. Okay, so because it's running in our head, kind of like subliminal advertising, we just believe it. We believe what our, you know, what that internal voice says to us. So to become more neutrally self-aware, you have to start questioning it. So how that works is, let's say you're approaching some new area of learning. Let's say you, you want to learn how to, you know, make, make, make calls on new prospects. You're trying to learn to sell. And you think to yourself, without verbalizing, you think to yourself, oh, I hate that. I'll always be bad at it. And so what I suggest is that you bring that to your conscious awareness. Wow, I'm saying that about myself? And then you say, is that accurate? And then you say, what data do I have to support that? And by doing that, you kind of take yourself off automatic and you start questioning your assumptions. And then you go, hmm, actually, I don't know if that's accurate, that I'll never be good at cold calling. Let me, wait a minute, let me, let me gather some information. Let me see if I'm, are there other things like that that I'm good at? You start becoming a more informed consumer of yourself. <laughs> right. And, and by doing that, you can come to more accurate a more accurate assessment. Now, most people, I'm sure you've noticed this when you do your exercise, most people don't do that. They just go, I'm great. It's like, well, wait a minute, or I'm terrible. It's like, wait, wait, why is that accurate? What data do I have? So if you can really get in the habit of vetting your own self-assessment, you will be much more accurate. And then where that leads you, which is wonderful, is what we call sources, the way you use the managers. Now, good sources, if you're really trying to get neutrally self-aware, are people who see you clearly, have your best interests at heart, and are willing to tell you the truth about yourself. Now, right. once you've gotten yourself into this more open, assessing, questioning place, then you can, you're much better able to take on board the things that your sources are willing to tell you. But if you have a combination of your questioning, your assumptions about yourself, and then looking to good, reliable sources, you can create a pretty accurate sense of yourself as a learner, which is just essential to start with. Right. So in this learning process, um, there is a very interesting dimension, and this is actually my favorite one. Uh, <laughs> and, and the next one is endless curiosity. Yeah. And one of the characteristics that I always look for when I'm hiring someone um, is what I call intellectual curiosity, and this is one of the reasons why I love you so much, <laughs> is because you just have such a curious brain, right? Yes. And and uh, you you don't stop until you figure out what's behind everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And curiosity. I mean, I'm sitting looking at my cat. You know, we we normally talk about <laughs> curiosity killing the cat. But we also think about it as being a childlike characteristic. And yes. so chapter six, you title that Endless Curiosity, Not Just Kid Stuff. Yeah. So tell me about that. So the, the, thank you very much. I, do, uh, of the, I try and be accurate about assessing myself, and I think I am strongest in the Endless Curiosity skill. I'm weakest in the Willing to Be Bad First skill, and we'll talk about that. But I am strongest in this one. And what this is, fortunately, we all have it in us at birth. Every, that's why I talk about it as kid stuff. Every child that was ever born and has a brain that works fairly normally is curious. 
And in, if you think about it, one, one of the fascinating pieces of research I found is that a lot of brain scientists now consider curiosity a drive in babies and small children like hunger and thirst are drives, a survival mechanism. And if you think about it, it really is. If, if, if you define curiosity as that urge to, to understand and master new things, think about a newborn baby and think about a six-year-old. The way they get from being that cute little blob to being a fairly fully-fledged human being is curiosity. Just endless questioning and trying things over and over again. And mommy, why does that happen? And what would happen if I dropped it? And can I do that again? And how did, why didn't that happen the same? You know, just that right. curiosity. Now, unfortunately, what happens, and this is the whole curiosity killed the cat thing, we, we get, most people get socialized out of their curiosity pretty deeply by the time they're teenagers. And it becomes much more socially acceptable to go, oh, no, no, I got it. No, I'm cool. I already knew that. <laughs> then to go, wait, what? I don't understand that at all. Can you explain it to me? And it actually gets worse as we get older. I mean, I can't tell you how many people over the years have come up to me after a meeting and said, you know, I really wanted to ask that question, but I, I thought they'd think I was being childish. That's the word they use, right? Mm -hmm. So fortunately, it's still in there, and we can re-engage it. And, and what I talk about in the book is kind of finding the sparks and then fanning the flames. And what I've found is that most adults, even the least curious, have retained their curiosity in some place in their life, and quite often it's in their hobbies because they're personally selected, they're low risk, we don't worry about looking dumb, and we're willing to stay curious. Like, ooh, how does that work? Um, let's say your hobby is knitting, you know? you're willing to go, ooh, ooh, I don't know how to do that stitch. Here, show me how to do that stitch. Or, wow, I wonder, how would I do that? Could I change that pattern? What would it, if I'm a little bigger here and not as big there, what would I need to do? Oh, I wonder if this yarn would, those are all curious questions, right? Right. So if you can, if you can find a place in your life where you're still curious and start to notice how you talk to yourself in that area, then you can start to transfer that mode of curious self-talk into other areas where you need to learn. And one of the things we found to help people is, it's some kind of starters, is that most curious questions start with how or why or I wonder. And if you start asking those kinds of questions in an area of new learning, it often primes the pump of your curiosity and you actually start getting curious. Even if you're asking kind of skeptical questions like, you know, how could somebody possibly be interested in this? If you ask it sincerely, it's like, huh, how could somebody possibly? I wonder, wow, maybe I should talk to somebody who is interested in it and find out what they think is so fascinating, you know, and it starts to take you down that path of action. Well, and it's <laughs> funny because as I look at my own situation with my current company, um, I have realized so many things about myself um, in this particular uh, slice of time in my business where mm. I've actually just taken a pause uh, in the business. I had, I had developed a product. I released it to the market, um, had a big client that was supposed to be a, just an enormous home run. It wasn't. Um, but it wasn't the product's fault that it mm. wasn't. So I had to sit back and figure that out. Then I hired a sales guy. Um, and hired is, is kind of the loose euphemism of getting somebody who will work for me, you know, for commission only, right? So mm -hmm. I can't pay him a salary. And then I went through the learning process 
with him and and you know onboarding him and getting him up to speed and having him make the sales calls and then throw them over the wall to me right to close which mm-hmm. the whole reason I needed him is I wanted somebody to close deals right <laughs> so so then I've taken this break and and now I, I'm taking a look at all the things that have kept me where I am and why why the business it hasn't gotten past being yes. a product and gotten to be a company. And and so that that self awareness and that curiosity of why is, is leading me to understand where my comfort zone is. And I yes. mean why at fifty eight am I just figuring this out? I don't <laughs> know. But I've realized that I love the problem solving Aspect. I mean, my curiosity mm. is applied to looking at problems and saying, oh, I know how to solve that. Uh-huh. Right? But when the problem demands action and interaction with other people, such as sales, mm-hmm. right, all of a sudden I am less comfortable because I'm really comfortable with the sheet of paper and the problem and mapping out all of the answers. And actually and, uh, being the such expert. A, uh, such right? a fantastic example. So if you really want to understand that then it's it's applied curiosity it's like well why why do i like that better what do i like about the one versus the other and i wonder if there's a way i could transfer it and if not how can i get you know it's all curious questions i mean i i see curiosity as the absolute fuel for learning if if you and it sounds like you've experienced this a lot if if somebody if you or anyone if someone can get genuinely curious, like, wow, I really want to understand and master this. Not just understand it intellectually, but master it, figure it out. If you can get genuinely curious about something, that is like rocket fuel for learning. Mm, Well, I love that. Now, I suspect my real problem is not mastering number four. Me too. Okay. Now, so the willingness to be bad first, uh, and this is where we get back to the the heart of this whole topic, which is the trap of competence. Yes. And I know what I'm competent in. And and the funny thing is, Erica, is that when I tell people about this, you know, that I'd rather go have a root canal than make a sales call, right, Mm -hmm. they'll always say to me, you know what? You're such an amazing salesperson. I think no, exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. So we're back to neutral self-awareness. But I'm wondering if it isn't the willingness to be bad first that is my I, real I, core I, problem. I, I bet you're right. I mean, it's so let's let's dig into this because it is for especially for those of us who are in our. 40s, 50s, 60s is generally less of a problem for people who are earlier in their careers, 20s and early 30s, because they're used to being bad at things and they're not so, you know, mired in their expertise. But for those of us who are well along, you, you come to rely on and identify with your expertise. People think of you, you know, people think of me as a great writer. People think of me as an amazing coach. I mean, people think of you as an astonishing consultant. I mean, they, they go, yeah. She's our go-to person. Let's do that. And it's hard to let go of that and go back to things that you're not good at. It's scary. It's demoralizing. It's frustrating. It makes you impatient. All that stuff we don't want to feel. So, <laughs> you know, yes, it's bad. So how do you do it? You know, and what we realized is that, again, it lives in your self-talk. So what happens when, ordinarily, what happens when we go back to something that we have to be a beginner at or we're, you know, where we're a novice, 
we talk to ourselves in really awful ways. I mean, if you, one of the little exercises, we have a, a course, a Be Bed First course, where we teach these skills. And one of the exercises that we have people do at the very beginning, and this works for almost everyone, is, okay, pick up a pen or a pencil, transfer it to your non-dominant hand, the hand you don't usually write with, and write your name. And for most people, it's a little microcosm of the same experience that we all have when we're trying to do something where we're a novice. You, and you notice you start saying awful things to yourself. I'm so lame. I can't believe this. I look like a five-year-old. Oh, I'm so clumsy. I hate this. This is so frustrating, right? That's the monologue that goes on in your head. All you're trying to do is write your name, right? With right. your right hand instead of your left hand, or your left hand instead of your right hand. But that's what we do to ourselves. And, and that's why we avoid it at all costs, because it's tremendously uncomfortable to talk to ourselves. It makes us feel really bad. Right. And, you know, right? I'm reminded of every time I go to the grocery store, I, I go through this argument with myself of whether I'm going to do debit on the keypad <laughs> where maybe I'm not going to remember my, my PIN number exactly. or I'm going to write my name. I'm going to select credit where I have to write my name. And they and it looks like you've written it with your left hand, right? If exactly. Right exactly. So, I mean, I, it just struck me that that willingness to be bad is, I, I think I'm not going to go to the grocery store anymore. <laughs> exactly. So today, and that's, I, I always say to people, if you really want to get good at this, next time you're trying something you're not good at, just notice how you talk to yourselves. We are so awful right, to ourselves, right. and it makes us feel yeah. terrible. So then we do whatever we have to do to avoid it. So the core of this is changing the way you talk to yourself in those situations. And what we found is that the ideal self-talk for being a novice is this balanced self-talk that has two parts. And the first part is, and I'll, I'll give you an example in a minute, but the first part is accept it, what we call accepting not good, just accepting it. And the second part is believing in your ability to get good. So how that sounds in, in, as an internal monologue is when you're approaching something new, you say to yourself, I'm going to be bad at this to start with. That's inevitable. And... I bet I can get good. I've gotten good at a lot of things in my life. And if you say that to yourself and really kind of settle into it and believe it, it's liberating. Suddenly you're not beating yourself up. You're not self-flagellating. You go, yep, that's how it is. I, that's just how it is. I'm going to be bad at this to start with. It, it just frees up your energy. You have this bandwidth for learning. I'll, I'll give you a great example that is real for me. I... I I was talking about knitting earlier. I'm a mad knitter. I love to knit. Every year I decide to learn something new so that I practice these skills. So last year my new learning was I decided to learn how to spin yarn. I thought it would be really fun to take it all the way from the sheep to the garment, right? So um, I tried to learn from YouTube. I bought a spinning wheel. I bought some, you know, fiber. I, tried, I couldn't do it. So I decided I had to take lessons. So I engaged this guy, and before my first lesson, I, I know my tendencies, so before my first lesson, I sat down and I actually went through this and I said, I am a novice. I've never done this before. I'm going to be bad at this. I'm going to be clumsy. It's going to be hard. That's just the way it's going to be at the beginning. I, it's inevitable. There's no way I could be good at this to start with. Right. And I bet I can get good. I'm kind of relentless. I'm a good learner. I'm really curious. I bet I can get good. So I went into my first lesson with that mindset, right? 
and it was amazing. It was so easy. I didn't, I wasn't putting pressure on myself. I wasn't creating unrealistic expectations. I just, my whole focus was on watching this guy, trying it myself. If it didn't work, I'd say, Jamie, what am I doing wrong? Show me through it again. Point out my errors. And about halfway through the lesson, and, and I started to improve pretty quickly, and about halfway through the lesson, the teacher, Jamie, said, wow, you're getting good at this really quickly. <laughs> and I, so then I told him, yeah, great, it's the subtitle of my book, here's the whole thing that I'm doing. And he listened really carefully, and he said, you know, I never thought about it this way, but you're absolutely right. He said, a couple of weeks ago, I was trying to, there was a woman who was a master weaver, and she decided to, she wanted to become a spinner. And I was giving her her first lesson, and because she was a master you know, fiber artist, a master weaver, she thought she should already be good at this. He said right. it was the single most frustrating experience I've ever had. She got more and more frustrated. She just, her hands kind of cramped up because she was so irritated at herself. He said she was actually worse at the end of the lesson than she was at the beginning of the lesson. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Well, the amazing thing is, and I, I'm, I would love to hear his stories now of how it has changed the way that he teaches because he now can help people acknowledge that at the beginning. It, it, and that's exactly what he said. He said, you know, I've always kind of intuitively said to people, hey, don't be so hard on yourself, he said, but this is great. It gives me language to say, hey, there's no way you could be good at this to start with. Let's just put that aside. You're a beginner. You're going to make a lot of mistakes. If you keep working at it, you'll get good pretty quickly. He loved it. He was a big fan. Yeah. But it was, it was, I, I love trying things out myself, you know, kind of eating my own dog food. And it was astonishing to me the difference that it made. I felt like all the static in my head just went away, and I was just available for learning. So it sounds like we have moved into Chapter 8, which is slaying your personal dragons on the yes. road to mastery. Is yeah. that where we are right now? Yes, and this chapter arose out of a conversation I had with a, a friend of mine and a, and a longtime client You know, early on the book. He said, I hope you put in a chapter that just is extra help. He said, because there's a lot of fear and uncertainty surrounding this and I want, I'm going to want more help is basically what he said and I said ah oh, great what an awesome idea I'll do an FAQ chapter you know and so that's what it is it's organized by the four skills and then there's a little kind of safety net at the at the end but it's just if you have additional questions because as, as you know Chicky all my books are my what I always want to do is help people make a practical change in their lives to become more capable of being who they want to become. So this isn't just, as as you know, this isn't just a theoretical, you know, tome. This is how do I actually become a master of mastery? How do I become better at learning? And so this is just like anything that has FAQs. You know, as you're trying this out, here are some things you might run, or might run into, and here are some ways to help yourself get better. <laughs> Well, and the thing I love about your books, and and uh, I always tell people that the the blank pages at the end of a book are really where you're supposed to be writing your notes uh, about what you've learned. But but you actually give people places to write things down in the book, all and, the way through. And in yeah, fact, we have a 21st century uh, thing here. We if if you if somebody buys a book and they go to bebadfirst.com there is a downloadable PDF that they can use. So if you don't want to write in the book or if, you, if you're if you using an electronic copy or an audible copy, 
that we have we've created a, a, a writable PDF with all the exercises throughout the book organized oh, by chapter, cool. so you can use that and do it electronically. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, you know, and I, I think with this kind of a book, if you've got something in mind, and and you already know what mine is, right? Yeah. That that <laughs> if you sit down, you know, with that in mind and go through the book with that specific challenge in mind, um, then you can slay that dragon. And by the yes. time you get to that, that end of book. So I already know what I need to do. Right? Yes, that's wonderful. And that's exactly right. And in the, in the third chapter, when I first explain the model and have people assess themselves, I encourage exactly that. I say, okay, pick something that you're actually learning so you can use that as your own model of how your learning works. And then pick something that you don't want to learn, but you know you need to, right. and then we'll use those as your own live examples throughout the book as you try the, try the activities. Well, and again, your, your last chapter of the book is do it now, right? Everything yeah. that you've learned. Yeah, you, bring it all to together, pick the thing that's really own. important to you, figure out how you're going to apply these skills, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because my, I, I, you know, it, my feeling is always I, I love for anybody to read the book and anything they get from it that's helpful to them, fantastic. My real hope is that anybody who reads the book actually is able to behave differently in ways that are important to them as a result of having read the book. So I, I organize the books, as you know, so that to make that as, as likely as possible. <laughs> right. Well, Erica, this has been uh, really amazing. And, again, the name of the book is Be Bad First, Get Good at Things Fast to Stay Ready for the Future. And our guest has been Erica Anderson. Erica, if people want to follow you or get in touch with you, maybe they want you to come in and talk to their company or, or you know, be active in, in helping them transform how they're doing things, how can they best reach you? Oh, that's a wonderful question. So um, they can go to our company website, which is Proteus, P-R-O-T-E-U-S-International.com, and kind of see what we do and who we work with. They can go to my own website, my blog and website, which is Erica Anderson, E-R-I-K-A-A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N.com, or they can go to connect at ProteusInternational.com if they want to email me and just find out what's up. Terrific. Well, and if also you'd like to learn more about the Executive Girlfriends Group or listen to some of our previous shows, including Erica's uh, other interviews, you can go to executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. We've got a couple of shows that you can listen to free without any commercials. And if you'd like to access the rest of our content, uh, we've got a couple of different kinds of membership uh, for both men and women. You can Uh, join just to listen to our shows and then we also have uh, memberships in the executive girlfriends group that have some other other benefits uh, around that so thank you so much for listening to us today and next week we will be talking about uh, social media and marketing and our guest will be barbara cave Hendricks. i'm really looking forward to that because i'm right in the middle of trying to figure out how to uh, publish my next book, which is just coming out. So if you are an aspiring author, you might want to listen to that show as well. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. And if you want to know more about solutions, just go to solutionswithaz.com. Thank you so much and have a great weekend. You've been listening to The Game Changer. 
ideas, inspiration, innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald.